Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Maybe you've noticed, on the walk into work, driving past a school, or just gazing out your back window, the trees, the trees have begun blooming. Not all of them yet, but some, especially the plums and acacias, magnolias, even a precocious cherry or two, at least in my neighborhood. The blooms, and something about the light right now, they're the promise that spring is coming. But spring is not so simple now. With global warming, the signals plants need to leaf and bloom are changing. We'll talk with experts on our local flora and the study of the seasons as a way of understanding what we've done to the earth. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. One of my favorite poems is by Pablo Neruda, the Chilean virtuoso. It's one of the Benti Poemas de Amor, and it ends with one of the best lines in poetry. I'll bring you happy flowers from the mountains, bluebells, dark hazels, and rustic baskets of kisses. I want to do with you what spring does with the cherry trees. Quiero hacer contigo lo que la primavera hace con los cerezos. Now, I don't think... Neruda was thinking about science at that moment, per se. But when I stop to think about the gentle, precise understanding that trees have of the spring, I can't help but wonder, what does spring literally do with the cherries and the plums and the magnolias? How do trees decide when to leaf out and when to flower? And if we're experiencing drought and deluge and steadily warming temperatures... Is that changing when spring does what it does with the cherry trees? There's a scientific field dedicated to studying seasonal change. It's called phenology. And we have a leading phenologist with us here this morning, Libby Elwood, ecologist and director of education, outreach, diversity and inclusion and global collaborations at iDigBio, which is a national research foundation funded project on biodiversity. Thank you for joining us, Libby. Thanks so much for having me, Alexis. It's great to be here. 
We are also joined by a fantastic super expert on our local flora. Ryan Giyu is the Director of Collections and Conservation at the Gardens of Golden Gate Park, which includes the Botanical Garden, Conservatory of Flowers, and the Japanese Tea Garden. Welcome, Ryan. It's very excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Libby, let's start with you. I mean, as we're starting to see things bloom, I'm struck by both kind of the wonder and the specificity of it all. So how does it work? When do plants know to bloom? Like, how do they know that? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot happening sort of physiologically with the plants. But um, to keep it simple, most plants that we experience here in the United States and the trees that we see flowering, they are queuing into the seasons, uh, mostly temperature. And so after a period of cool winter weather, um, and cool, of course, um, is relative to where mm-hmm. we are in the country, but after a period of cool weather, they recognize, hey, the, it's getting warmer, it's spring, and it's time to flower. And they want to um, flower as soon as they can when it gets warm to take advantage of a full growing season and any pollinators that might be out there. And so are there other things aside from temperature, like the, the light's changing, right? I mean, they're getting more light. Does that also kind of figure into when they decide to bloom? It does, not nearly to the extent that temperature does. I would say that if we were to look at all of the variables, precipitation, again, depending on on where we are in the country or in the world, um, precipitation would be another factor. Um, And that's something, of course, that is important in California. And the plants that are uh, experiencing, like this year, quite a bit of precipitation. Uh-huh. I mean, I think what's what's interesting about that is that they do have to integrate some of this different kinds of information. You know, the temperature may be the sort of key factor, but even on one block, you might see one tree that's blooming and another tree that's not. Um, even if they seem to be receiving the same amount of light and presumably they're in the, you know, experiencing the same temperature. So how much kind of local variability or kind of like, I guess I want to say information processing is kind of happening within these trees? Yeah. So yes, you're right. Block to block, even within a block tree to tree, you could notice big differences. And there could be things that they're queuing into that, you know, are subtle enough for us not to pick up on us as humans walking down that block and seeing one tree in flower and across the street, the other tree not in flower. And it could be as simple as, um, you know, maybe there's a streetlight that's providing some extra warmth. Maybe there are are other factors. Maybe it's uh, there's radiation, heat radiation coming off of a building. We see that a lot of times too, or trees that are just tucked away in the corner of a building and getting some extra heat there or protection from wind and, and other things that might be cooling off the tree across the street. So there is definitely a lot of, of that sort of microclimate happening. Um, usually it doesn't affect things too much beyond, you know, a day here or a couple mm-hmm. days there. But um, you can definitely notice that, especially at this time of year when um, when things are starting to pop, like you've noticed in your neighborhood, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. We want to know what you listeners are seeing in your backyard or neighborhood. Is there sort of a a leaf out or a blooming that you wait for? I mean, for me, the apple tree leafing out in our backyard is a huge moment. The plum blossoming, huge moment, changes everything about the way the yard looks and feels. Uh, Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 6786, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at 
kqed.org. Uh, Ryan Giyu, uh, uh Director of Collections and Conservation at Gardens of Golden Gate Park, you kind of have the biggest backyard <laughs> um, in your work. You get to sort of look across all these different domains. What are you seeing that's kind of blooming at the park right now, and uh, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, no, it's um, we we are very fortunate. We have a very large garden. Um, the botanical garden itself is fifty five acres, um, but right now is magnolia season, and we all look forward to that. We have over two hundred trees in our collection. Um, we've just hit peak bloom now, so it's really exciting to come. And I think it's gonna be a really good year because we're having very consistently cool weather. Um, which is really helping keep the flowers on longer and have an extended bloom season. Mm. So um, the magnolias are one of these beautiful things because they start blooming. You know, there's no leaves on the tree. You just get these like incredible uh, big blooms. What are some of the most common ones that people might see out there? Like kind of these, uh, I I think of the ones that have these just massive um, uh, big red, dark, dark red blooms. Yeah, um, you know, the, there's probably two magnolias type that you see most commonly in in home gardens. That's Magnolia exulangiana, and you tend to see a lot of the Magnolia denudata around as well. So those are kind of like the most common. They're really tough. Um, they're early blooming, but um, you know, there's many many other species out there, many other unusual hybrids. So um, and they can come in various shades of white to pink to dark, more saturated magentas and reds. Mm-hmm. And do they bloom? I mean, you just said we just hit peak bloom. Do they pretty much come on all at once, or is it sort of a, they they have their own minds around this? Yeah, you know, um, every species is different, um, and there are no magnolias native to the West Coast, so everything's kind of be on their own schedule here in our very mild. I call it almost seasonless San Francisco. We kind of have spring year round in many ways, so they're all on their own rhythm. And they all kind of do different things at different time, at different things each year based in, based on the different weather conditions we're having. And then also, not all magnolias bloom in in winter, spring. Some bloom in summer. So uh, very diverse. I, I I left this out of one of the things that happens in my yard, but uh-huh. the magnolia blooming, like when it, it we just got our first one that that bloomed. Uh, and it's one of the greatest moments, you know, because it's our first, like, big new flower oh, um, awesome. in our front yard. I love it. Um, Libby, I want to talk a little bit about the historical study in phenology, um, which is really fascinating and, and important. Um, let's talk a little bit about cherry blossoms. We've corresponded about this before. Um, just because the data goes back so far, where does it come from and what kind of data do we have? So the oldest data about cherry trees flowering goes back to Japan and to the to the 800s, which is just unreal when you think so about 1300 it. 1300 years ago almost, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so at that time, though, people weren't necessarily recording cherries for the sake of science, but for the sake of party planning. And so it was a really big event in Japan then, and, and it continues to be as it is in many cities and places around the world. But the uh, they were planning the cherry tree blossom parties uh, and so in court documents, we could see these records. And like I said, they go back to the 800s and have continued from then till now. And it allows us to track when those parties happened. And cherry trees blossom for a very short period of time. It's a very ephemeral event, which is good when you're studying phenology, because it means that when you have that party at peak flowering time, then that's a a really critical data point to knowing that Mm. phenological stage. And then we could track how it's changed over time. And what's really interesting too, this, um, 
research just came out pretty recently is these cave paintings in Lascaux, France, where they <laughs> um, have these drawings of horses and, and all these things. And there, right. there were all these dashes. And for the longest time, they couldn't figure out what these symbols were on these cave paintings. Turns out it's essentially a phenological record of uh, different stages in the life cycle of these animals that the, uh, that the people then were interested in studying. So there have been a lot of different reasons why people have studied phonology. And the cherries, though, are the most um, well-documented when we think about modern climate change studies and using phonology as a way to stay, as a way to see how temperature and climate is impacting plants and animals. Well, and just... Um... What does the record show? I mean, where I think we can all uh, have all gotten there logically in our minds. If it's getting warmer and mm-hmm. they bloom when temperatures uh, are higher, it's making spring or the big blossom like come earlier. That's exactly it. Yes. And so we do see that across the board that um, plants are flowering quite a bit earlier when it's warmer. And um, this happens also with other plants. Uh, stages in the plant's life cycle. So not just flowering, although, you know, sometimes, like I said, for party planning, that's what we're interested in, Mm -hmm. but leafing out or fruit development, all of those things are advancing uh, for the most part with, um, with warming temperatures. So how sensitive are plants to temperature change? Because, you know, uh, thus far in climate change, obviously things are getting a little warmer, but it's not like that much. Are they that sensitive to, you know, a degree or two or three, depending on, you know, the latitude and local conditions? Oh, they really are. Yeah. And that's why they're a great proxy for studying climate change and this impact on um, on our ecosystems. Because if we think about plants flowering and that being a little bit earlier or, you know, potentially later, but in this case, it is, it is happening earlier. That signifies the start of the growing season. It also then points to when certain nutrients are starting to cycle through these ecosystems. So you have a lot of uptake of water and nutrients and, and carbon and all of this really kicks in once spring, uh, once spring hits. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about flowers, but it's also um, a much, it's part of a much bigger picture. Mm. We're talking about how spring works. That's like what we're talking about in the early blooming of trees and climate change. We're joined by Libby Elwood, who's an ecologist and director of education, outreach, diversity, and inclusion at IDIG Bio, which is a National Research uh, Foundation-funded project on biodiversity. We're also joined by Ryan Giu, who's director of collections and conservation at the Gardens of Golden Gate Park. We're going to take uh, some phone calls and get some comments in in the next uh, segment. We'd love to know, what are you seeing in your backyard and your neighborhood? Have you noticed change over the years? The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You may have noticed the trees outside are beginning to bloom, at least the magnolias, some of the plums. And we are talking about how spring works. Um, We're joined by Ryan Guillou, Director of Collections and Conservation at Gardens of Golden Gate Park. That includes the Botanical Gardens, Conservatory of Flowers, Japanese Tea Garden as well. Uh, Libby Elwood is an ecologist and Director of Education, Outreach, Diversity, and Inclusion and Global Collaborations at iDigBio, which is a National Research Foundation-funded project on biodiversity. Also a noted phenologist. Those are people who study uh, seasonal change. I've got got a great comment here. I love this. Connie writes, My husband prunes our plum tree back in late winter so it doesn't grow too far into the driveway. I bring the cut branches in and put them in big vases all over the house. The warm indoor temperatures bring out the blooms. Gives me a jump on spring. By the time they're done and have dropped petals all over the place, the outdoor blooms are opening. Love that. Um, Ryan, real quick, do you have like cuttings all over your house? If I were the director of collections and conservation at Gardens of Golden Gate Park, I think my house would be overrun by random cuttings of things from around. Oh, goodness. You know, you'd think that, but, you know, you've heard the the, the saying, uh, you know, a mechanic's car or a hairdresser's hair. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of plants at work. I have plants at home, but um, I have a small balcony and I keep it very modest so I can actually fit and walk out on it. So <laughs> I love it. You have like three succulents on your balcony and then you got 55 acres. Pretty of, much. Uh, yeah. Of, yeah. Um, let's bring in Lisa in San Carlos. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. Thanks so much. Um, I live in a... Uh, uh, hundred-year-old farmhouse in San Carlos, and the only remnants of the plum orchard that used to be, you know, that the farmhouse mm-hmm. used to be in charge of uh, is, is an old plum tree on my property, and over the years, the gardeners have said, oh, you got to cut that thing down, it's old, it's, you know, getting rotten, it's, the ants are eating it, and every year I refuse to cut it down. <laughs> Because it's kind of the guy, the guy that watches over my house, and every year it makes the most beautiful pink blossoms and the most fantastic, almost inedible plums. But yes. I eat them anyway because they're <laughs> mostly pit and not much, not much flesh, but they're fantastic. And my chickens love them, and I just—it makes me super, super happy every every year this time of year to see that plum tree keep coming back. Mm. I love that. And I know those exact plums. Those are the uh, plums that my plum tree makes as well, which you kind of make into a jam that's also itself barely edible. (laughs) But you eat it anyway. Um, I also love, you know, San Carlos. uh, People probably know this, many of our listeners, but, you know, Valley of Heart's Delight was what the largely fruit-producing areas uh, were were called before there was Silicon Valley. So I love that as a a remnant of, of that time. Um, let's get uh, to another uh, call here. Uh, Gretchen in Napa, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on today. I yeah. um, <laughs> We have this apricot tree, this huge apricot tree in our backyard, and we've only lived here about five years in Napa in this house. And I have four kids, 
And every year, the apricot tree, who, which right now is about 50% beautiful pink blossoms all over, and in the next probably four or five days, it'll completely fill out. And every year, it's the one thing out of all the fruit trees that we have that everybody looks forward to the most because it's the first one, and it's mm-hmm. huge. And by far, the apricots are everybody's favorite. They all come on all at once, so we get them for about a week and a half, and then they're gone, <laughs> just like that. And the last two years in a row, it's been too windy or too hot right after they've bloomed, and we haven't gotten even one apricot. So everybody this year is outside, just giving it all the good vibes. And oh, yeah. Too big to really <laughs> cover or do anything about, but but it's uh, it's it's one of the things that everybody looks forward to the most. Yeah, well, and man, boy, you feel that loss too, right? If when when the fruit oh, doesn't yeah. come in, yeah, <laughs> we had a fig in our old house. Like yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Um, are there, you know, um, Ryan, for, for people who may be in that situation where, you know, they're like there's a, an unusual weather event around one of these bloomings or something. Is there anything people can do or is it just kind of like you have to trust the tree to figure it out or not? Yeah, there's really not much you can do. You know, our climate's our climate and we can't keep it from getting hotter in those little moments. So, you know. Um, like our college just said, um, we had a big heat wave last winter or last um, early last spring, and we the, those flowers that are expecting cooler temperatures for a longer period of time got burnt out, and so they didn't they didn't get a chance to get pollinated to be able to make fruit, and so um, you know we're hoping that we have good temperatures each year and that we can actually get good flowering and good fruit set. So not much we can do beyond that. Too bad. Good luck no. to your uh, apricot tree. I'm sending good vibes from Sutro Tower right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, Libby, there's this incredible line from the Rose Journals that you've mentioned to me in the past. And it kind of, even as we talk about spring, I don't want to leave out the importance of winter. Um, I have the line here, so I'll, I'll read it to you in case you don't have it memorized. But to us, snow and cold seem a mere delaying of spring. How far we are from understanding the value of these things in the economy of nature. That's Thoreau, March 8th, uh, 1859. What do, you, what do you read or see in that quote that's significant? Yeah, that's a great one. And I will say um, quite a bit tamer than the um, poem you started us out with uh, at the, the beginning <laughs> of this segment. Um, but yeah, I think it really speaks to the fact that at least in Thoreau's New England, which is in the mid-1800s, winter was a real you know, it was a real event and it was a time of dormancy um, for plants where they really kind of went into a deep sleep for several months and were then able to pop as soon as it, as soon as the snow melted and it got warmer. And there, the plants in New England and in many of the places in the northern uh northern latitudes, they come to expect those seasons and those seasonal changes. And there's a sort of clock and Thoreau was interested in mapping out the timing of the seasons. And that's why his records are really important to the work of phenologists like myself. And so that the timing of when uh, winter set in and then when spring came about, that was really important to understanding the the seasonal cycles and then having a better understanding of the world around you and, and kind of what to expect year to year. Mm. Let's uh, bring in caller Denise in San Francisco who wants to talk about the, the broader ecosystem uh, in along these cycles. Welcome, Denise. 
Oh, hi. Uh, so, you know, different plants flower at different times of the year, and our pollinators depend on the plants that they evolved with, meaning the local native plants. And scientists are talking about, you know, um, the biodiversity crisis, the insect apocalypse, Two-thirds of North American birds are at risk of extinction in the, in the foreseeable future. Well, uh, there's, there's a way for people to actually do something, you know, be part of the solution, which is to plant local native plants because insects depend on those native plants and birds eat insects for protein. So um, my native plant garden is um, my backyard and um, I also had my homeowners association plant a native plant garden, and um, mm -hmm. I encourage everyone to yeah. do habitat restoration with groups like the Golden Gate National, um, um, the Conservancy Group, and also um, Reckon Park has a natural resources division that manages. 32 significant natural resource areas, which are open spaces uh, for yeah. um, in, in, for San Francisco and uh, nature in the city. There are many groups that do this um, kind of restoration. Restoration. Yeah. yeah, Denise, thank you so much. That's a it's a really it's a really good point. And you know, Libby, what I wanted to um, talk about with you because there's. There's the planting of the the native plants, um, which is you know obviously significant, helps our native um, insects. But there's also these questions of the the timings because the 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 insects themselves have their own phenological sense, right? Their own sense of when the seasons are coming on. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the kind of sinking or getting out of sync that happens if we do get warmer temperatures that kind of bring on spring a little early. Right. So when we say the plants are earlier this year, or it's a, an early spring or a warm spring and, and the plants are flowering earlier, then you the plants are, are doing that in response to temperature. And we were talking about the road uh, following the seasons and keeping track of, of when things were happening. And insects are pretty much doing the same thing. Plants are doing the same thing. We're all kind of uh, tuning in to the environmental variables that are impacting the the way that our life cycle is progressing. And so if a if a plant is flowering earlier, it's really hoping that it's really banking on the fact that insects are also going to be responding to that same those same cues. And to to various extents, insects may or may not be. So a plant comes out to flower in the spring, and then hopefully an insect, uh, a pollinator, is coming out at around the same time and progressing through its life cycles. And the timing syncs up such that it can pollinate that plant. And then as as um, Denise, our last caller, alluded to, right, the, the birds, especially those that might be migrating from far away, maybe even from South America, they want to be on the scene too, just as those insects are becoming more active in the spring. And so you have this relationship between the plants and their pollinators, and then between um, birds and their food source, and you hope that those are all in sync. And we have seen some evidence that the pace at which certain organisms and certain groups of organisms are responding to warmer temperatures is not the same across the board. Mm. So what we've been seeing is that plants are flowering very early uh, in response to warmer temperatures, 
but birds aren't necessarily arriving as early in response to that. And it could be that they're coming from, like I said, a different continent where maybe the seasons are happening in a different way. It might not be the same level mm. of uh, of a warming sp- of a warmer spring in in Brazil as it is in uh, North America. And so they might not be coming up at the same time that their uh, insect um, food sources are are also emerging. So there is this complex um, uh, there are these complex cycles that are impacting how different organisms, you know, might be uh, experiencing success or, or a lack of success each spring. Well, and some plants and trees themselves, right, even have more or less, I, I'm going to call it seasonal plasticity, right? Like some of them seem uh, better able to adjust to rapid temperature change than than others. Right, definitely. And yeah. so it's true, certain plants will be able to pop as soon as it's a warmer spring. Others will, you know, maybe be a little bit sleepy still and, and take yeah. their time coming out or or be cued into other variables. And even just within plants, that can they can impact each other. If you think about that tree leafing out at a certain time, well, once that tree leaves out, all of a sudden below it, it's shaded. And so if that tree leaves out earlier than it used to, the plants below it might be shadier, it might be in the shade earlier than they're used to. So hopefully they're they're also keeping up pace. So if they were depending on some spring sunshine to progress through their life cycle, that they're that they're getting that before the before they get shaded out. So yeah, there's a lot that is playing into all of this. And certainly organisms are impacting each other as they are um reacting to the the environmental variables around them. We've got a couple of great uh, listener comments coming in. Um, Ryan, I'm going to take these to you. These are about people who've tracked trees in their yards for a long time. Phil writes in to say, I've tracked my California buckeye for 30 plus years. This year, it leafed out January 19th, two weeks earlier than usual. Lovely soft green leaves, always the first harbinger of spring. Another listener tweets, if I remember correctly from 30 years ago, acacia started blooming in March or late February. Now it comes out in late January, early February. My internal clock gets confused. Um, Ryan, I wanted to ask if you have noticed um, or if there are records at uh, Gardens of Golden Gate Park that would allow you to kind of provide some context for listeners, you know, individual observations of the trees in their yards. Yeah, well, first I have to say, 30 years is a lot of commitment. That's uh, right. bravo to that. I love uh, Phil just imagining him <laughs> filling in one little notebook he pulls off, you know, every year and just writes down the thing. Oh, that's amazing. No, dat- data is really important when you start talking about things like this, especially over a long period of time. You know, we at the Botanical Garden don't – we've had um, stops and starts of recording bloom time for certain um, certain groups of plants, um, and we do as we can get that information, but – I've only been in the Bay Area about five years, so I can't speak to a longer period of time. But um, the more information, the better. And the more information in you know the same kind of ways makes it easier for us to look at things over a longer period of time and know that. So, um, yeah, we, we do record when certain things are in bloom, like certain magnolias are in bloom. And so over a period of time, we can actually start to see if there are big changes. But yeah. I will say each year is a little bit different for our, at least our magnolia collection. Um, it can bloom two weeks in either direction or more sometimes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, Libby, for people who are, you know, uh, pro- that is almost like pro-am. That's like better than amateur to go for 30 years. Uh, phenologists who are, who are tracking things like this, are there places that they can kind of get linked into the, the broader kind of um, uh, 
I think they're changing the name Citizen Science, but what was once known as Citizen Science kind of networks. Yeah, and, and we could call it community science if we like here, or, or participatory science, something like that works for sure. And yes, um, there are lots of ways to get involved. I'd say the most uh, popular and one of the easiest ways to get involved is actually a project that started in in your neighborhood here with uh, at UC Berkeley, and it's now hosted by um, Cal Academy and National Geographic, is a project called iNaturalist. Mm-hmm. And it's an app, it's a website, it's a place to upload photos of these things you're seeing, whatever it is. It's a plant in flower, it's a cool bug, it's anything um, you see out there. And what's great is that if you upload a photo and you know what it is, great, provide an identification. But if you don't, then there is um, a, a feature that will take a, a guess at what you are, at the photograph you are seeing or at the photograph you're uploading. So it'll say, all right, we, this looks to me like a cherry tree. And you could say, oh yeah, I think it does. And you could approve that or say, I don't think you're right. And you could um, uh, go with something else. But either way, it will go out to the masses and people who are experts in this field, who are experts in uh, different kinds of trees or insects or birds, whatever, uh, image you are putting on the app on iNaturalist, you uh, they will take a look at the identification and approve it and or or provide something that's more accurate. And then those data, once they are uh, once an accurate identification is um, is acknowledged, then that actually goes into a big database called the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, and that's where folks like me can go out mm. there and download all these data and not just see, for example, um, what Thoreau was seeing a hundred year, hundred and fifty years ago, but what everybody out there is seeing. And that's when things get really interesting because we could see is uh, our plants in San Francisco responding to this warm spring the same way that plants in Los Angeles are or New York or Tokyo or or anywhere because so many people are using this app and uploading photos and and then these data are readily available to for us to download. So I, I really do encourage folks to um, uh, use an app like iNaturalist. Like I say, it's really easy. It's even if you... Yeah. Um, have no clue what you're looking at. <laughs> that's uh, that's really fun. I didn't realize that data fed all the way up the chain um, to you all. That's great. Um, another listener writes, we have a huge plum tree in our backyard in Kensington. It's the first tree to bloom in our yard, and often it does so as early as the end of January. The flowers form a screen in front of our bay window, and each year, in amazement, I briefly mistake the first white flowers for snow. Such a wonderful sight to wake up to. We are talking about how spring works and blooming trees and uh, climate change, you know. We're joined by Libby Elwood, ecologist and director of Education, Outreach, Diversity and Inclusion and Global Collaborations at iDigBio, which is a national uh, research-funded project on biodiversity. Also joined by Ryan Guillou, director of collections and conservation at the Gardens of Golden Gate Park. We're going to get to more of your calls and comments right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the trees, which are beginning to bloom, and what it means in the context of a a warming planet and how spring works. We're joined by Ryan Guillou, Director of Collections and Conservation at the Gardens of Golden Gate Park. That includes the Botanical Gardens, Conservatory of Flowers, and the Japanese Tea Garden, all amazing institutions in San Francisco. We're also joined by Libby Elwood, who's an ecologist and a phenologist, someone who studies seasonal change. We are going to get some more of your calls. I just want to read you some of these sweet comments that are coming in. Another listener writes in to say, One of the most fascinating times of the year, just this week, I brought in small branches of buckeye, forsythia, apricot, and plum, and put them in bases of water so that I could watch the progress as they bud, leaf, and bloom. Today, I'm going to pick up my granddaughter from school and make her a little vase of branches so she can do the same. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, uh, these little rituals that we develop around these plants and around springtime. Um, I'm, now I'm just going to be thinking about you, a named listener out there doing that this afternoon. Um, Rachel in Mountain View, welcome. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. I, my uh, connection comes and goes. I hope you can hear me okay now. Oh, yeah. You sound great. Okay. Yeah, I had I just Oh no. Rachel, you were correct. Your connection does come and go. Uh you sounded great right up until you started talking and now we can't hear you. I'm so sorry. Let's um let's go to uh Mimi in Oakland and hopefully you can get that worked out. Hi Mimi. Hi Alexis, thank you for taking my call. I love your show. Um and this topic is so timely. Um, so I've been seeing in my neighborhood plum trees, apple trees, acacia, um, all kinds of loveliness, and then also some agave blooms, which are pretty cool. So. Oh yeah, that's so cool. I so Mimi, um, I have been thinking that I was seeing cherries go in my yard i'm I'm like 99 percent sure that one of the trees near my house is an ornamental uh cherry ryan Guillou, i wanted to ask you you i believe don't think any cherries are out yet at least in san francisco not that i have seen the plums are definitely out that's for sure um but i've not seen any seen any of the cherries typically our cherries at least in golden gate park are around end of March, early April. And so we have a nice big clump at the Japanese Tea Garden, which is a really great display of them. But I've not seen them yet. Yeah. Mimi, do you happen to live in one of the sort of like warm microclimates of, uh, of Oakland? Absolutely. I've lived in both um, Alameda and Oakland my whole life. And Oakland, where I live, like in the lower hills, it's about mm-hmm. eight degrees warmer than Alameda. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was going to say there's some spectacular acacia blooms along Highway 13 right now. Mm. Um, and then just one final point I wanted to put out there for a great day trip for family um, or a date is um, the Almond Blossom Cruise in Modesto. 
Um, it's from mid-February through mid-March. I went last year, and you get a map, and you get to go all through the almond orchards, and it's just breathtaking. You take photos, you smell the lovely scents, and it's a great day trip, and then you can also support some of the farmers. They have, like, a booth in there, too, so. Uh, Yeah, but anyway, happy spring. Yeah, hey, thank you, Mimi. Yeah, and, um... Take uh, take that trip. I feel like, you know, Bay Area people getting more into the Central Valley is a uh, is a good thing. So you can see where we where we actually live. Um, let's uh, hop right to uh, another caller, Elisa in uh, Mountain View. Welcome. Hi there. This is Elisa from Mountain View. How are you, Alexis? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I love your show. Um, I just wanted to share about a program that I'm working with, which is Insight Garden Program. And we're based in Berkeley, but we're statewide, and we're serving um, nine California state prisons doing in-prison garden programs. And we have about 25 participants at each site. And one of the really, really important things that we do is, is teach folks how to make observations mm. and to build biodiversity in our gardens. And um, we teach composting, and we um, use the metaphor, you know, the garden is a metaphor for the inner gardening, outer gardening. Mm-hmm. But the the... The pollinator piece is really important to us, and I've been with the organization for a little over a year, so we've been able to watch the changes throughout each week that we come to prison um, in terms of the plants um, growing, blooming, dying, you know, the, the life cycle of the plants, the life cycle of the um, pollinators and the birds, and it's just it's a beautiful program, and I just wanted to share about that. We're also working with UC Davis around their, um, with their Center for um, Community and Science uh, citizen science as well, mm-hmm. doing kind of what Olivia was talking about. Um, but the data collection that they're doing is feeding into the Great Sunflower Project, which mm-hmm. is doing similar work, um, so, Ali- watching trends in California. Elisa, if people want to get involved in this uh, prison gardens program, um, what was the name of it again so they can Google? You bet. We're a nonprofit based in Berkeley, and our um, the name of the organization is InsightGardenProgram.org. Insight Garden and uh, we're always looking for volunteers to work both in the prisons as well as working with our correspondence course. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, Elisa, thank you so much. That's um, that's great to hear and uh, extremely interesting to me personally as well. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's go quickly to Alan in San Francisco. Hey, Alan. Hi. Um, Some one of your guests mentioned, I think it was the Naturalist Program for mm-hmm. Community Scientists, and I was curious one like how one can find that and like what sort of projects or research that data was being used for feed into cool. yeah Thanks. great question great question so um it was uh libby elwood uh, was talking about it and um the program is i naturalist like iphone but instead of phone naturalist um alan thank you uh so much yeah libby what kind of uh projects does that kind of data feed Yeah, so there actually has been a number of phenology projects that have used data provided by people who, uh, you know, like like your listeners here, have been documenting the plants around them, not necessarily for any particular purpose. Maybe then this is a pretty flower or, hey, check out the cool plant I have in my backyard. But uh, then once that gets out onto these public databases, then all sorts of projects can use them. So, yeah, we have definitely used those data for phenology projects. We can track invasive species, for example, um, and see when people start seeing different plants and animals in places where they weren't before. So different range shifts as well. And as 
the climate changes, you know, certain plants and animals might be showing up where they weren't historically. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. being able to document that, um, moving north and moving elevation, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Because certain plants and animals are, or they have preferences for certain, um, temperatures and precipitation, um, levels. And if those aren't being met where they currently are, then you'll start to see them shift either, um, you know, physically move if you're an animal or plants that on the edges of their range will continue to grow more and more into those new ranges as they are able. So to find the that little um, suite of climate variables that works for them, the right temperature and the right precipitation. So yeah, things get warmer. Often that's further north or or up the hills. Uh, Ryan, we have a couple of um, master gardener questions for you. Uh, One listener writes, I have a wonderful Santa Rosa plum tree in my front yard that has lived there for 40 years and feeds the whole neighborhood in June. I've always had it pruned in late January, but this year it has not been pruned yet and it's in bud. Is it too late to prune? And uh, I have one other pruning question. You can do them together. Jim writes, what time of year is best in this area of California to trim Japanese maple trees so sap doesn't run from the cut ends? Okay, let's work backwards. Um, I think the best time to prune your Japanese maple tree is winter. So you want to make sure that your tree is completely, completely deciduous. So that's usually the best time when it's dormant. And it's going to have the less um, the less less chance of shock when you start to prune it, or mm. especially harder, more structural pruning. And then in terms of the um, Santa Rosa plum, um, pluming, pruning, uh, bl- uh, pruning it in late January... Um, after it blooms, I guess could be fine. It you know, uh, you only want so many plums on your tree to have you know larger, more fuller, um, uh, higher quality fruit. But you don't want to prune too much off because you don't want to prune off the uh, the the flowering stems or the or the the developing buds after those uh, um, after the after the plum has bloomed already. Um, and actually, we have one more right. uh, gardening question on the line. Arlene in San Francisco, welcome. Thank you. Um, I have a, a tree. It's called a um, uh, a guava nectar tree, and I planted it 15 years ago. Last year was the first year I actually had any fruit, <laughs> and we didn't do anything different as we've been doing all along. And I'm just wondering if that means it was a one-time thing that's going to happen, or it'll continue to fruit every year now. You know, I think... Um you probably should start to see more fruiting happening. You know, some plants may take a while to get up to enough size or maturity to start making fruit. Um, you know, the guava tree can be uh, likes a bit more warmer temperatures than we can more reliably offer it in San Francisco. So it may have just taken a bit longer to get to that size and stage. So um, you should be pretty good, but, you know, you'll you'll find out next year. I just, I mean, that's another one of those great things. I love it, Arlene. You have to wait 15 years for first fruit. That's just amazing. Um, I want to get to one other uh, comment here that is great. Annette writes, I live in San Francisco and every winter is shorter and shorter. I used to spend my gloomy winter days contemplating my spring garden, looking forward to attending the mid-March garden show at the Cow Palace for inspiration, pruning my perennials, browsing seed catalogs. In January, I see my hydrangeas, maple tree, and rosebush already budding or leafing out. Even my annuals are flowering. What happened to the dormancy that we had to plan and dream about our spring garden? I love Annette. The, the mark of a true gardener is that you're appreciating the dormant period. You're appreciating the seed catalog time. 
I have to admit, I haven't gotten to that level of enlightenment. I'm always sort of like, I want to plant things. Let's go. Um, we are talking about blooming trees, how spring works, like actually, you know, the, the season of and what it does um, biomechanically even uh for our local flora. We're joined by Libby Elwood, an ecologist and phenologist, and Ryan Giyu, Director of Collections and Conservation at the Gardens of Golden Gate Park. We want to hear from you. What are you seeing in your backyard, in your neighborhood? Is there some biological, ecological event in your yard or in your neighborhood that you wait for and that really you have a connection to? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm loving all these calls. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. All right, have to tell you, this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, which you absolutely should do, Go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. All right. On with the show. Let's bring in uh, Jim in Livermore with a really fun question. Welcome, Jim. Hi there. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Yeah, something always bugs me whenever a season uh, starts like winter and the news media comes on and it's December 21st, the longest night of the year, the shortest day, and they say, winter started, and I'm saying, no, it it's like the middle. <laughs> Same with spring. Spring is busting out all over, and, you know, the news media, you guys maybe with an exception, is saying, oh, spring's going to be in about six weeks, and <laughs> I, I think it just, it's just weird. And you know, I Jim, always notice yeah. it. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say... Libby, there's kind of different definitions of the seasons, right? I mean, I think that's that's kind of what we're getting to. I think the the media is largely going on the uh, I, I guess it's the astronomical calendar, right? Is that how you think of it, Libby? Or are, can these co can these definitions happily coexist? Thank you for that, Jim. I think it's a it's a fun point. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And we haven't even talked about groundhogs yet, but (laughs) their ability to predict the seasons. But I I will say, too, yeah, I think that um, to an earlier question, plants aren't necessarily responding to the amount of daylight that they're experiencing, at least when it comes to spring. In the fall, usually they are more so when we start to see leaves um, senescing and changing colors and and falling off of their branches. And so often that's a response to lower levels of of daylight. But come winter, yeah, you're right, that uh, it's not necessarily December 21st that a plant goes out. Winter, time to shut down. It's, you know, it's it's the dormant season until March 21st and then spring, I got to do my thing. It really is based on uh, a much more complex set of variables that they're queuing into. So interesting. Yeah. Ryan, when do you, for yourself, mark springtime? Is there like a, a, a particular moment? Oh, not really. You know, like I said, San Francisco is kind of springy around. You can have a colder day in July than January. So mm-hmm. it's a little screwy here. But um, California, spring is kind of a concept. I think, in, especially as you go further south, spring is really when the rains start. Um which kind of a, kind of a big shift compared to let's say the four classic seasons you'd see more um, inland like the Midwest and East Coast. So uh, I don't necessarily have a full answer for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, last caller, Suzanne in Petaluma. Welcome. Oh, thank you. 
Um, yes, I'm a master gardener in Sonoma County, and I give talks um, on monarch butterflies, and I speak to the, um, you know, to the, well, the, the situation we have with phonology um, in that um, we're also glad to see so many monarch butterflies around on the coast this year. Mm. But the thing is, um, with um, the warming temperatures that we often see in early spring, the monarchs may mate, but if they move out of their overwintering sites and don't find early flower nectar plants for the adults and milkweed for the females to lay eggs on, the female, the mother, will die with her ovary full of eggs and we lose a whole generation of monarchs. So phonology is a, a really important situation, um, yeah. you know, as you said earlier, for insects, but for monarch butterflies in particular. Yeah. Thank you for that point, Suzanne. Really appreciate that. And um, I want to get to, uh, Louie, I'm going to ask you one one more question, but I first want to get to one of these uh, listener comments that's about kind of a similar thing, like the complex interrelationships here. Uh, Sue writes in to say, several decades ago in Mendocino, because it began to warm earlier, the sap in our pines ran earlier. Usually this sap kept the pine beetles from invading the tree under the bark, obstructing their passage. But by the time the beetles appeared, the sap had run. The beetles had full access to the underbark and ate away to their heart's delight. The layer of nourishment for the pines was destroyed. As a result, massive quantities of pines have died all along the coast and in many of our yards. Um... I mean, Libby, this feels like one of these kind of classic phenological issues. Absolutely. And we have seen this, especially, um, or to, to add to the complexity of, of that point, too, if you introduce a species that is um, not native to a certain area, then then their phenology might be different than than that of the native insects or the native plants. And so what they're queuing into um, might allow them be really highly successful and and overpower the the local ecosystem there and it it's true that the the sap running and the the beetles responding that's all all part of this that's a perfect example of how things can shift with different temperatures and uh, and certainly with climate change and 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 the negative impact that can have on some of these organisms yeah Thanks so much. Last uh, comment, Amy from Western Montana writes, some of us who live in the frozen north, she's writing in from, from far away, are so looking forward to spring, but it's a ways out. I'm thrilled to be heading to spring by way of visiting family in the Bay Area soon. My heart is rejoicing to hear that the blooms await. A favorite place is the magnolias in the SF Botanical Garden. So many beautiful spring wonders soon. Well, can't wait for you to experience that, Amy. We've been talking about what spring does to the cherry trees as well as other uh, plants and insects. We've been joined by Libby Elwood, ecologist and director of education, outreach, diversity, and inclusion and global collaborations at iDigBio, a phenologist as well. Thanks for joining us, Libby. And we're jo- we've been joined by Ryan Giyu, director of collections and conservation at the Gardens of Golden Gate Park. This has been Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.